Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week will be Dr. Daniel W. Hauk. Um, Dr. Hauk has recently written a book, Aquinas, Original Sin and the Challenge of Evolution, with Cambridge University Press, um, who very graciously gave me a copy of his book. Um, Danny and I got to know each other originally in our master's program in Princeton, um, so it was good to get to talk with him again about this work. So Danny will introduce to us some of the major concepts, nature and grace, uh, original sin, original justice, um, and he'll also talk about the univicity of language um, and how humans can speak about the divine and how the doctrine of original sin, contrary to the way that many people speak about it, is actually one of the most humane doctrines uh, as it includes even those who uh, don't have the sort of reasoning, uh, the highest reasoning capacities. Um, and it's, it's a really interesting conversation, so um, I'm, I'm hopeful uh, that uh, you will enjoy it. Um, we also had a nice com uh, comment from uh, Australia. Um, Andy McGaw wrote to us recently and said that um, he is in Western Australia in the Kimberley region, and he has enjoyed our podcasts, uh, especially uh, our conversation with Dr. Bearsma. And so um, I thank, thank Andy for reaching out and having a good conversation. So if you have any comments or questions, please feel free to uh, message us on Facebook, on, uh, which is uh, facebook.com slash ahocked, or uh, Twitter. Uh, we are at TheologyXIAN. Um, so find us on Twitter, find us on Facebook, and rate us and review us on iTunes. Uh, we will have one uh, episode coming up with Jacob Wood uh, called to stir for, on his book uh, to stir a restless heart, um, and uh, we have some other stuff in the works. Dr. Drew Johnson's book on Hebraic philosophy, and another conversation with Tom and Trevor, um, who will be back from a long hiatus. So a lot uh, is in the works. So thank you for listening uh, and enjoy this episode. All right. Uh, well, today on the podcast, uh, we have uh, Dr. Daniel Hauk, uh, and Danny and I knew each other at Princeton Seminary, and now Danny is the uh, pastor of um, Calvary Hill Baptist Church in Virginia, and he recently wrote uh, Aquinas' Original Sin and the Challenge of Evolution. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that, and uh, yeah, so I'm excited to have Danny on uh, we've done one other book from Cambridge. Tyler Whitman's book recently came out with uh, Cambridge. So we've done a little bit more Aquinas uh, recently. Um, and in a podcast that hasn't been released yet, I, I uh, recorded with Ben Heigerken, who did uh, Aquinas and uh, Maximus the Confessor on the Temptation of Christ. So we actually are going to be a little bit more Aquinas heavy recently uh, than than we had been in the past. So, uh, But Dan, Danny brings a, a very... Um, philosophical approach or at least sort of straightforward reasoning approach um and uh we talked a little beforehand about what exactly uh his approach is um but i think i think there'll, there'll be some uh this could be sort of an interesting podcast for us so i i asked him to kind of define some terms and uh lay out exactly how some of these pieces are going to fit together but as always i try to make the podcast um a little bit more uh not just a straightforward rehashing of the book um, so we'll have some other questions uh, that will that, you know, sort of touch on what he covers in the book. But the book is, of course, worth reading for for its own sake. Um, and it was a it's a it was a really interesting read. It stretched my uh, my intellectual capacities, I will say, um, as someone who does a little bit more historical contextual work, uh, getting into the argumentative, uh, uh, more philosophical uh, work like this uh, definitely took. 
uh, took me, uh, you know, really stretched me. So I appreciated uh, uh, Danny's work. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Chad. Happy to be here. It was a bit of a long introduction. I don't normally go that long. I don't know that's, what happened. Sorry about that. That's all right. That's all right, dude. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so there you go. That's the book. Danny's here. Uh, so we're going to just dump right, jump right in. Um, and so I've, you know, as always, I send Danny some questions. Um, and so I say uh, your treatment of original sins sin leans more on the philosophical theology side. I thought we might begin by getting some of the terms out on the table. Um, so the most obvious is what is original sin? What are we talking about? So the origins of the doctrine of original sin are in scripture and the locus classicus, the most important passage that led to the development of the doctrine is Romans 5, 12 through 21. And I might just read a couple verses from that section to help unpack the origins of the idea of original sin. Paul says in Romans 5, 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin. And so death spread to all because all sinned. And then it kind of breaks off there. And there's a lot of controversy over how to interpret this verse, but many interpreters through the centuries have thought that Paul is saying that all human beings die as a result of sin. So this uh, phrase at the end, death spread to all because all have sinned. Now, as you know, Chad, from your study of Augustine, there's a controversy <laughs> over the translation of this verse. Augustine famously or infamously uh, thinks that this clause in the Latin uh, says, in whom all sinned, uh, as though the text literally said that all human beings sinned in Adam. But that's not according to most biblical scholars, the best way of thinking about it. But even if you don't take Augustine's translation of this verse, what I just read was the New Revised Standard Version. So even if you take what is the sort of standard uh, critical and scholarly text and the mainstream translations, you still have Paul saying that death came to all because all sinned. And of course, as, as we all know, uh, tragically, uh, many infants wind up dying. And so human beings are mortal from the very beginning of their lives and the very beginning of their existence. And so it, what many interpreters have argued over the years is that there is a connection that Paul is establishing between mortality and sin, such that if a human being is mortal, uh, then normally they would have sin. Now, there's a big exception in the case of, of Christ, which we can talk about. Uh, but mm -hmm. in terms of the normal state of human beings after that one man who sinned. And that's a reference, uh, of course, to Adam that Paul makes explicitly in verse 14, says death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses. Um, so the idea would be that since that sin of Adam, all human beings have mortality and have sin, and the two are intertwined in a, in a sort of necessary way, in the sense that if you have mortality, you have sin, uh, and vice, vice versa. Um, another quick point here in terms of the Please. exegetical basis of the doctrine that sometimes gets neglected, I think, in the mainstream discussion over whether the doctrine is biblical, because it has been very controversial. And to this very day, there are many Christians who argue about whether it actually has an adequate biblical foundation or not. But one other verse that I think is relevant is verse 18, Romans 5, 18, which says, therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. So I think, in my view, that the, the, the passage as a whole, 
and in particular verses 12 and 18 there do provide mm -hmm. strong support for the idea that since the first sin of human beings, that subsequent human beings have been born in this default state of death, sin, condemnation. And mm -hmm. so that's, that's the basic biblical origin. Now, in terms of the question, what is original sin? It's, it's tricky to define because one of the things I explore in the book is the diversity and variety of theories of understanding original sin. And that's one of the goals of the historical section. The first few chapters are largely historical. Uh, one of the goals is to just show uh, theologians and pastors and others who are interested in this topic just how much disagreement there has been over how to understand this doctrine. I think yeah. um, uh, St. Augustine is, has the most well-known and famous articulation of the doctrine, and we can get yeah. into that uh, in a little bit. But one of the things I want to show is that the doctrine precedes Augustine, and mm -hmm. even after Augustine, there's a huge amount of debate over different aspects of the doctrine. You know, For example, how guilt relates to original mm. sin, how Adam relates to original sin, how the corruption of nature relates to original sin. There's a lot of debates over these and other questions. And in my view, scripture doesn't give us an extremely precise theory of the doctrine. Uh, I think that this idea of original sin is found in scripture, um, but I don't think that it tells us all of the details of the doctrine. And so I think that's the task of theology to try to seek understanding of this uh, datum of faith, if, if you will. Okay, so yep. with that said, I will give a definition of, of the doctrine, which is <laughs> tricky, but it, I, I define it basically as the doctrine that infants are normally born with sin. Uh -huh. and, and that's extremely vague, extremely broad, yeah. but I think it's a definition that is designed to encompass a lot of the different theories that come around the doctrine. Yeah. So normally is the qualification that's put there to certainly include Christ whom we believe is without sin, as, as scripture says, he was, he was tempted as we were uh, in all ways, yeah. the author of Hebrews says, but was without sin. And there's uh, yeah. numerous other reasons to believe that he was sinless, including biblical, theological, et cetera. So he was without sin. And I'm, I don't get into questions of Mariology in the book. And so I sort of leave, I leave it open, you know, whether there could be uh, others. I personally am, uh, am not, uh, Roman Catholic. And so for, for me, it would be Christ would be the sole exception. Uh, but the argument of the book does not depend on on one's uh, take on uh, the question of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, which mm -hmm. uh, we could we can get into that too, if we if we want. But uh, yeah, so it's, it's basically this idea that infants normally have sin. Yeah, is, is the bottom line. Yeah, for me. very helpful. Yeah, I, well, and I had a paper that I sort of started to write and uh, never really got published or worked towards it. But the other uh, textual locus for Augustine is 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Um, and so that, like, and, and in some cases, uh, chronologically, that seems to precede for Augustine uh, his reading of Romans five. So you might think that uh, his reading of Romans five could even be informed by this. Um, anyway, um, yeah, so, uh, but there's, that's really interesting. I wasn't aware of, I was not aware of that in Augustine's thought there, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. First, first Corinthians 15 is another huge text for this discussion. Yeah. So it, I mean, well, there's, there's some debates about how much Augustine actually understood Greek and this sort of thing. Um, but it shouldn't actually be a debate. He clearly read Greek, um, and was translating Greek by the end of his life, um, despite, uh, what, 
um, some like David Bentley Hart, among others, uh, have wanted to claim uh, about his ignorance of Greek. So anyway, uh, I, I do leave that to decide. If he if he did, you know, it does seem odd that he uh, like the the way that he reads it. I, I understand why there's a concern about it. Um, but but anyway. Um, yeah, well, that's, that's super helpful. Also, uh, just as a plug for another podcast that'll come out probably before this one, uh, Ben Heigerkin and I discuss a little bit what that means, uh, for Christ to be sinless, uh, with respect to what, uh, how Christ was tempted by demons. Um, so he goes through, um, uh, uh, Maximus the Confessor and, and Aquinas on that question. So it's pretty. So so that's another one if you want to explore and think about what Christ sinlessness means, and specifically that uh, verse in Hebrews uh, four is is extremely uh, important for Heigergen. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that episode myself because I like Ben's work and I think it's a really interesting topic and one that I'm doing a little bit of work on myself. So I'm excited to see what he has to say. And I've read a little bit of an earlier draft of his book assuming that it's coming from his dissertation if i'm not mistaken yeah, that's so right. i'm looking forward to, the, to seeing his uh final copy of that yeah well um well yeah that should be out soon um moving on the next uh term i asked danny to find uh is is one that you hear a lot less um so everyone or everyone uh, m many people who have studied theology are aware of debates about original sin, uh, but one term and phrase that becomes important uh, in this work is original justice. Um, and so that plays a role in uh, thinking about how we move from original sin and uh, original justice and what the implications are of those two tie being tied together. So uh, take it away, Danny. What, what are we talking about when we talk about original justice? So the phrase original justice originated with Anselm of Canterbury, but the idea of it goes back much earlier, really to the beginning of reflection on human protology and human origins in the connection with this question of original sin. And the basic idea is essentially what is required to say, as Paul says, that sin came into the world through one man. The idea would seem to be that the first human beings, the first, and specifically he's talking about Adam, but uh, Adam and Eve, or when we can talk about human origins more broadly, but the idea would be that the first human beings were created without sin. They were created sinless, and that's why on the basis of their sin, sin entered the world. Now, Paul's not in this passage, he's not thinking about uh, demons and demonology, and that's kind of another question that, that people can ask, well, did sin really enter the world through Adam if, if uh, Satan was the first one to sin before that? But that's not really in Paul's uh, it's not really his focus in that passage. Yep. So original righteousness, the, the basic idea is there has to be some kind of sinless state before the first sin. Now, exactly what that state entails is a very tricky thing to spell out. And there's been just about as much debate over the nature of original righteousness as there has been over the debate over the nature of original sin. And part of the tricky thing is that one has to define sin uh, in order to define sinlessness. Uh -huh. And there's debates over, for example, whether sin is simply the volition of sin acting in disobedience to God's commandment, or whether an internal disposition or inclination to sin uh, would also count as sin, sometimes in the West that, that's known as concupiscence. And so in many cases, and there's a strong tradition of this, especially in the West, there is a connection between sin and this disposition to sin or inclination to sin known as concupiscence. 
such that the, the inference from that would be that the first human beings must have been free from concupiscence as well as free of any uh, uh, volition that disobeyed a divine command. And so in Augustine, for example, this is a classic example, though he's not the only one, Adam and Eve, he doesn't use the phrase original righteousness, but the idea is that they are created in a state where they love God above all things, where they do not have concupiscence or they don't have disordered concupiscence rather. And they are also potentially capable of living forever if they continue in obedience. Mm -hmm. And so those are the three kind of main traits of original righteousness as it developed in Western theology, namely in our wills and intellect, there's this love for God above all things. And we also are free from any kind of inclination or disposition to sinning, again, often known as a freedom from concupiscence. And we also have the capability of living forever and not dying. Um, and then there's debates about exactly what that what that means and how that connects to the tree of life and so on. But at least this capability of not dying is traditionally in the West thought to be crucial for that original state of righteousness. Mm. Very good. Um, and so then, you know, as we just move along, so the question is, you know, we have got this original sin, you know, we may have this original, uh, we, we have original sin now, uh, we had some sort of original justice, and then grace plays some role um, in moving us to back to uh, justice, to righteousness. Um, and I, I guess, uh, just for, uh, I, it's a sort of separate question, I I don't like that we have two English words that are justice and righteousness. It drives me a little nuts um, because <laughs> I, I, I think in sort of popular usage, uh, righteousness might feel more spiritual and justice sort of feels more like civic uh, and like communal or something um, oh, like people don't. Uh, at least as I hear people use it, it usually seems like justice. Uh, and, and I just mean sort of in common parlance, like not in theological debates specifically. Um, and so I tend to think that people um, sort of misuse or I don't even know if it's misuse, but like we just have let these two words slide into slightly different domains. Um, so I assume that we're using these as effectively synonyms. Uh, but yeah, do you have a thought? Which on one that? would you? Yeah, that's in, that's a really interesting thought, Chad. I haven't thought of it that way before. So which which one would do you think it has a you think righteousness has a better connotation in that I would I would I want to use justice. I don't want to use righteousness okay. almost almost at all, but that may be my proclivity to wanting to use a latin based term than a uh, a germanic based term. Uh but yeah, no, I mean, but I th I don't want it to be overly so I I think the fe for me the fear is that it's sort of privatized. Righteousness feels privatized. Uh justice feels communal. Um and I think that we at the very least uh I don't want it to be at the expense of our responsibilities outward. Um, and so it's sort of like, you know, sort of almost like righteousness has become a synonym for piousness too. Um, oh, I'm so pious. And that is my own sort of personal goodness. Um, and we, we don't think to connect that to um, this sort of broader justice. And so, so we use justice and we use social justice. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think, I, I don't know that they should be dissociated at all. Um, but if we just had one, we could sort of have a, a larger concept uh, that would tie the two together um, rather than thinking that they're in separate domains. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting line of thought. I haven't really thought of it that way before too much in the scholarly literature. They're basically synonymous in this context, yeah. at least when it comes yeah. to original righteousness, original justice. But I think that's an important question to ask, like, what are the words connoting and how are they going to be received? And uh, I think that's that's interesting. Definitely something to think about. 
Yeah, and and it's not well. It's a I like when I teach my students uh, Latin and Greek. I always say like as a as a historian or as a person who's interested in ancient languages, you're always navigating two different fields, whether you realize it or not. You're studying the ancient world, but you're also still studying the contemporary world. Um, because if you're not effective at communicating uh, what you've understood about the ancient world, uh, either you'll be lost to your present speakers, or you could be you know the problem of uh, of reading you know sort of eisegesis reading your contemporary concepts into the ancient literature without recognizing that that uh you know that you're doing that that you're importing your own sort of thought world um and so you know so i feel like it's important to have your feet in both camps like okay i need to be very aware of how we think now um so that i can see the ways in which that's different then uh to whatever absolutely. period you're studying but absolutely um so what is what is grace <laughs> yeah so that's yeah, so that's an interesting, an interesting one, and I might, I might use that as a segue to get into a little bit of the diversity of views on the effects of original sin as well. Okay. Yeah. So basically, one, when, when you see the doctrine start to get debated over the, over the centuries, there's a huge question about the relationship between the effects of original sin and the original state, and then the sort of restored state that we're in once we come into a relationship with Christ. And there's a lot of questions that get raised about this. Now, in Augustine's account of original sin, he argues that human nature is corrupted when Adam sins. He thinks that in some sense, human beings pre-existed in Adam's loins, and that when Adam acted, the nature is corrupted. And as a result, all of subsequent humanity is born with a corrupted nature. Mm. Now, when we receive charity in our hearts and the charity of the Holy Spirit, there is a kind of beginning of the restoration of nature. And there's, there's a lot that it can be said in favor of Augustine's account, but there's also a lot of tricky questions that it raises. And one of which is, what exactly is this relation between human nature that gets corrupted and nature that continues to exist in some form after the fall. Mm -hmm. And one major contribution I think comes, and this is the one of the major historical kind of foci of the books of the book's historical analysis, uh, comes from Aquinas who wants to clarify the use of the word nature in a few ways. And I think that it's somewhat helpful. And what Aquinas wants to do, and this is going to relate to grace eventually, um, mm -hmm, sure. what Aquinas wants to do is say that there's really a couple different senses of the word nature that we have to distinguish. We have to distinguish nature insofar as it means the essence of the human being, like what the human being is, like you might say, the human being is a soul and body, for example. Uh, and, and if you don't have a soul or a body, then you're not really truly human being. You might say something like that is, is human nature. Mm -hmm. But there's also... Another sense of nature, which relates to flourishing or well-being. And in that sense, you might say, well, it's, it's really natural to human beings to love God and love each other. And there's some sense in which we're fulfilling our nature when we do that and when we live into that. And in that sense of the word, it's, an, it's a valid sense, it's a legitimate sense, but it isn't essential to human beings, at least if you believe that human beings who wind up turning away from God and sin are still human. And so what Aquinas wants to do is he wants to identify this 
second sense of the word nature, nature as it relates to human flourishing in the love of God, the love of neighbor, and so on. He wants to identify that with grace. He wants to identify that with a gift of God, as opposed to something that belongs to the human essence or something that is necessarily true of being human. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of this move, which is quite controversial, it was controversial in his own time, it was controversial in the Reformation, it's controversial today. But if, if you take that move that Aquinas suggests, then what you want to say is that the first human beings enjoyed grace because uh-huh. they were in, enjoying this kind of friendship, this intimate relationship with God that also spilled over and allowed them to love each other, allowed them to love creation, and allowed them to flourish. And so in Aquinas's terminology, then, original sin becomes largely this lack of grace, this lack of relationship with God. And without that relationship, our lives wind up not going as they should, according to God's plan and intentions. And so what salvation then becomes is a, re, a reception of grace uh, that, is, that is, in a sense, a restoration of that original gift that was lost. But human nature, in the sense of being human, existing as humans, survives. So then what happens is, in terms of this question of what is grace, so for, for Thomas, and I, I basically agree with this suggestion, grace is this supernatural offer of friendship with God that orients us ultimately to the beatific vision in heaven and allows us to live for God uh, today. And although it takes different forms in different periods in the history of the church, it looks different in Adam and Eve, for example, than it would look in Israel, than in the church. But fundamentally, it's it's united by that feature of bringing us into this friendship with God by which we can love him and so on. Mm-hmm. And um, the, there's controversies, though, over the extent to whether you should think of grace as something supernatural, as I was just suggesting uh, that Thomas did, or whether it's something that actually belongs to human nature, which is an alternative position. So, I mean, that's kind of a sketch of, of grace mm-hmm. insofar as it's relevant to this discussion of original sin. There's obviously a lot of other ways we could talk about grace. It's a huge doctrine because then you get into gifts sure. of the spirit and particular graces and things like that. But just in a very kind of basic sense as it relates to original sin, that's that's how I would at least start the discussion. But we could take that in a lot of different ways, depending where you want to go. Sure. Well, no, it's, I mean, yeah, I realizing that when I put that question, I should have said, what is nature <laughs> uh, to precede grace? Sure. Uh, and yeah, and that was a, a mistake on my part. But I think we may actually get to cover a little bit of this. I've got another book coming from Catholic U on um, Rita Lubach's interpretation of Augustine, or of, of Aquinas on grace. Uh, oh, interesting. So, who's who's that by, by the way? Uh, Jordan. Uh, Jordan. No, not Jordan Wood. Someone Wood. Um, Joseph Wood. I don't know. I just uh, I just talked with the the my the marketing guy about getting it. I haven't read it yet. Um, oh, I think. Um, yeah, Jacob Wood. Is that who you think? Jacob of? Wood. Jacob Wood. Yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that quite a bit. Um, yeah, I, I think. Yeah. So there's this whole debate over the relation between nature and grace that, that really takes off in, in 20th century Catholic theology and, uh, you know, gets very, very technical and interesting. And I think a lot of it is actually rooted in Aquinas's distinction between nature and grace. Uh, it's not that Aquinas was the only one to kind of distinguish nature from grace in technical terms, or that he was even the first one. Uh, there's, there's a, uh, there's some historical work that, that shows there's previous uh, medieval thinkers who, who do that to a certain extent. But I think Aquinas was perhaps the first one to 
sketch a fairly rigorous distinction between nature and grace as technical terms. And, and one thing I should just say really quickly when we're talking about the distinction between nature and grace, I think it's important because I think this gets lost in a lot of the contemporary debate, is that when Aquinas is distinguishing nature from grace, he's really distinguishing two levels of grace. He, he believes fundamentally that all creation is a gift of God. Uh -huh. so, so there's no question in, in, a, in a sort of basic sense, like everything is grace. Yes, absolutely for Aquinas, no question. Uh, God is not obligated to create. Nothing forces him to create. He's actually free uh, not to create, uh, as mm. uh, Joel Chop is, is going to be arguing in some really mm. interesting uh, dissertation project from, from Toronto. Um, so there's no question that that all things are grace in the sense that they are not owed to the creature and that God transcends creation and so on. However, however, the key for Aquinas is that he doesn't think that enjoying the intimate life of God in the beatific vision is something that comes with being human. Mm. Ultimately, salvation for Thomas, as well as a large part of the Christian tradition, is deification. It is participation mm -hmm. in yep. the divine nature. And because of that, it's not the kind of thing that could possibly come with being a creature. Mm. And so what he wants to say is that there is another gift, a second gift, and that is supernatural grace. Uh -huh. And so, the, yes, all things are grace, but in order to show that the salvation that we have is ultimately something that transcends our natural abilities, the technical term supernatural grace or sanctifying grace gets coined in distinction uh -huh. from the kind of grace of creation of human existence. So I think there's a lot of people that, who want to argue, well, you know, you, sh you know, you shouldn't talk about nature because, you know, that implies that creatures have rights over against God or something like that. And I just don't think that's a rep accurate representation of Thomas's view or the kind of mainstream nature grace distinction that developed uh, over time. So that's that's a little bit there, um, you know, and you can get into, uh, you know, the the another quick thing I would say, if could we stay on this point for a minute? Is that all right? Please, sure. Yeah, sure. Great. Yeah, yeah. So. Another thing too that I think is important, and I get into this in the final chapter of the book as I try to anticipate some objections. Um, a lot of people think that if nature and grace are distinguished, that you have to fall into this so-called two-tier scholasticism where nature has its own sort of autonomous existence and it's capable of flourishing and doing just fine without supernatural grace. And this is uh, one, of, one of the big uh, arguments that uh, De Lubac makes, kind of a meta argument he makes throughout various works, that this kind of two-tier scholasticism developed over time and it caused all these problems theologically, politically, spiritually, and so on. And I actually think you can grant that that occurred historically. You can grant that that uh -huh. occurred over time with different developments of the concept of nature. But I don't think that that criticism applies to Aquinas' view or just the basic idea of distinguishing nature from grace. And I think you can believe that nature and grace are distinct and still think that nature has an orientation to grace and a desire for grace. So although I, I want to distinguish nature from grace, I think Aquinas does, and I think it's a good distinction to make for the reasons I was just mentioning about the importance of deification being something that transcends yeah. nature. Um, I, I actually do agree with De Lubac that there's an intrinsic dynamism towards grace and an intrinsic desire for the supernatural that comes with being human. Now, that's actually not an argument I make in the book. And yep. my view of original sin is actually neutral. You know, it's actually neutral on, the, on this technical question of, of natural desire for the supernatural. 
but I will, I'm happy to say like, I I'm inclined toward the daily box perspective on that. Yeah. And, uh, I think it's, I think it is a problem if we, if we do try to, uh, separate them too sharply, the two orders yeah. of nature and grace. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's helpful. I'd never, I, I mean, you know, uh, I'm, I'm familiar with, uh, some of the participation, uh, sort of the discussions of participation in Augustine and, um, sort of in, in patristic thought, but I'd never thought about what it would mean for a natural human, uh, or the nature of humanity to ultimately end in part deified participation. What would that look like? And how would that be possible? Like those were not questions that I was actually asking, uh, of the, of the doctrine, if we want to call it that, or at least of the discussion of it, uh, in, in, well, in, in uh, most of the time people ascribe it to Eastern thought. Um, and as any a regular listener of my podcast would know, uh, I studied with McConey, who says that this is actually part of Augustine and Western thought. And we need not think that uh, just because uh, it's associated more predominantly with Eastern thought that it's absent from uh, Western theologies. But, Absolutely. Um, so that's, yeah. Um, participation was not something that I understood. Uh, just, be, you know, just sort of going back, thinking about my own process and growth theologically. Um, and even when I, you know, knew Danny at Princeton, like, I didn't even know how to, like, I didn't even know what that was. Like, I, you know, what, what are we talking about? Like, I only had concepts of, of, of atonement and justification that are sort of uh, post-reformation. Um, and all of this was like, you know, when I started getting introduced to it first with a little bit of, uh, like, not quite revulsion but like what are you what are you saying um and then as i began to understand that i was like oh this is kind of a beautiful doctrine <laughs> absolutely yeah i had a similar background and that i wasn't really exposed to those ideas specifically of participation are you looking to make a meaningful lifelong connection with someone who shares your beliefs if so, then you've got to try Christian Mingle. With over 15 million Christian singles, Christian Mingle is unlike any other faith-based dating site. Their ability to help members make quality connections is what sets them apart. They have robust profiles and personalization features that help you connect with other like-minded members. Plus, their suite of communication tools helps you meet more people and make deeper connections. Finding your true love is one of life's great adventures. So discover why so many Christian singles find love at christianmingle.com slash history. That's christianmingle.com slash history. Yeah. Well, um, we're, uh, let's see, we've been going on about a half hour. I'm going to jump to a question that, uh, just to shift gears a little bit to do something sure. different. Um, I'm going to ask Danny the question that I like to ask all of my guests now. Uh, that is, uh, what is in the course of your sort of, uh, life and your study of scripture and theology, uh, what's one thing that you've changed your mind on? So one thing you thought was true and now think is false or one thing that you thought was false and you now think is true. And I, I say this can be pretty open, like, you know, it could be something inconsequential or it could be something that comes about in the book itself. Um, I It's elicited some interesting responses, and so I've really enjoyed it. So, yeah, I'll, I'll let you take that in whatever direction you'd like. Sure. Yeah, no, it's a great question. The, <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind is, is maybe a bit technical, but okay. it's still, I think, an important issue in theology. And I have changed my mind on it. I used to think that the doctrine of analogy was incredibly helpful in solving all kinds of theological problems. Uh -huh. And it's one of the things that was really appealing to me about Aquinas's thought was his, his account of analogy. But I've become convinced that it's 
not necessarily so helpful. And I'm not sure that it doesn't reduce to ultimately equivocation or univocation. So this whole debate about, just for your listeners who may not be familiar, yeah. there's a whole debate about how our words uh, wind up being true of, of God. How do we actually speak of yep. God? And there's a worry that if our words mean the same things when we speak about creatures and God, there's a worry that we'll sort of put God in a box and you know imply that he's a creature and commit conceptual idolatry. But then there's a worry on the other end that if we commit equivocation, if we use words in a totally different sense, like if we say God is loving, and we mean a totally different thing by the word love than we do when we talk about like loving your your you know spouse or your child or something. Um, there's this worry that well then who knows if if God's love is anything remotely like what we've experienced and how is that not kind of a terrifying idea? So yeah. analogy is supposed to be this way of bridging the gap between the two where there's a kind of similarity and difference in the way that we use words. Um, about God at the conceptual level, but I'm just not sure that it's actually a viable middle way. And so, um, yeah, I mean, to, to lay my cards on the table, I, I lean a bit more in a scotistic direction in terms of okay. the importance of having some words that are used, or rather the concept itself is univocal when we apply it to God and we apply it to creatures. But I would say that, and th one of the reasons that I changed my mind on this was that after reading Scotus, myself firsthand, I realized that there's, well, I realized there's a strong word that's kind of a, a verb of, of success. So I realized it's contestable. Um, but I, I came to think that his, that Scotus's view that just because a concept can be univocal across creature and creator, it doesn't mean that the ontological status of creature and creator is the same. So in fact, you can say that God is good and you can say that a horse is good or a man is good, and you don't have to believe that ontologically they're on a par. You can believe that God sure. is infinite and man is finite. You can believe that the horse is irrational, the man is rational, and use the word across these different this different range ontologically. And so, but you avoid the problems of equivocation. So that's kind of a, a uh, I realize that's kind of a technical thing, but I've I have kind of shifted in uh, on that question uh, pretty pretty sharply over uh, over the last few years well it, it may be like the most significant question of mid-20th century theology um as far as bart and shavara and you know protestant and catholic dialogue is almost entirely a debate about exactly what we mean by analogy whether yeah um so i was gonna say the other direction i guess like pure cataphasm or pure uh, apophatism would be the other possibility um, it seems like you're going the total other direction if we're talking about sort of poles um, that that you just it's actually absolute univocity would be uh, your, your total ability to speak um, rather than trying not to say anything almost. I still think I would actually argue that. So I was I was trying to use these semantic terms, equivocation, univocation, yeah. analogy, because I, I actually think that even if you take a scotistic view of, of the way that concepts can apply univocally across creature and, and creator across that boundary. I, I still think there's a very robust role that apophatic theology can play in the uh -huh. sense that as we come to understand God more deeply, it is absolutely crucial that we go through a extensive period, really never ending in this life anyway, period of negating the kind of creaturely connotations of these concepts and so far as they apply to God. And so 
I do think there's a that there there needs to be an, an apophatic moment, if you like, uh, in in theology, and I I actually don't see a problem with combining that with a more broadly scotistic understanding of the way that our concepts can apply to God. And if if anybody's curious about this, I I personally have enjoyed the work of Richard Cross on this on SCOTUS, and he's been helpful among other scholars. But just kind of clarifying what what SCOTUS is actually saying, he's badly misrepresented by a lot of scholarship, a lot of scholarship um, in, my, in my, yeah, there's, there's just a lot of just bad misrepresentations of SCOTUS. And um, so that's, that's one place to look would be Cross's work. There's some others as well. It's kind of a little bit of a detour here, but um, yeah, that would be one thing. You know, it, it's interesting. The book was about this theology science stuff and that's not, I mean, there's a lot of, I, I actually don't have a, a background where, I was ever like super strongly against evolution and then came around to, to, to being an evolutionary creationist, which is kind of the preferred term these days to theistic evolution. Um, uh-huh. I, I just didn't really think about it all that much, but I got fascinated with some of the problems in, uh, in grad school, but I didn't, I uh-huh. sort of went from not having an opinion to uh-huh. thinking that these things can be brought together. I didn't really go from being super opposed or super in favor to flipping it around. There you go. I, I can't, okay. So now, I mean, all I'm thinking about is the analogy here, but you, yeah, one yeah. thing that you, one thing that you said that was kind of interesting, it, 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 uh, it sparked in my mind. Um, one of the things that, uh, Wittgenstein talks about in the philosophical investigations is, um, the sort of therapeutic nature of, um, philosophical argumentation. And I wonder, you're, you're talking about a place for apophatism where we're always trying to sort of, uh, uh, make sure that we're not uh, sort of applying too much creatureliness to the divine. But I wonder if there's a sort of a therapeutic element to um, apophatic theology that could be sort of similar to how um, uh, what Wittgenstein describes in the investigation. So um, what we're always trying to do is get, get better, but you can't, you can't just say like, I'm, well, I actually, I also love the idea of movement uh, versus stasis in some of these things. So whatever we're doing when we're uh, philosophizing or theologizing is to some extent a movement, right? I mean, so like to hold on to sort of an Augustinian and more ancient concept of you're always moving in one direction or another. And so there's a place of apophatism, maybe intellectually, of uh, as kind of moving us closer towards our goal. So it's a necessary therapeutic uh, for language that's sort of overly simplistic or maybe overly um, uh, redundant about, or not redundant, uh, too, too simply applying creaturely concepts to the divine. I, I don't know if you have a thought about that, but uh, maybe I'm, I'm totally off the rails. I don't, I don't accept that it's an interesting thought. I think that's a really <laughs> interesting idea. Um, <laughs> Wittgenstein is, is someone that I, I need to read more of at some point. He's not someone that I've been, that I've studied in a deep way. And I think that's, it's an interesting idea. I, I mean, just prima facie, I like the idea of, the therapeutic moment there connecting that with apophatic thought and the apophatic movement. It's interesting. Yeah. I don't, I, I mean, I, so yeah, we did a little bit uh, of Wittgenstein in undergrad. Uh, we just read the uh, Tractatus. Um, and then as I don't know, somewhere uh, after Princeton, I started reading the investigations and liked some of the other stuff. 
Um, and you know, Vic Wittgenstein has become popular for lots of different things, but, uh, yeah, anyway, I don't know. I find a lot, I find some of his stuff thought provoking, although it drives me nuts when, uh, the way that he describes, um, Augustine's view of language from confessions. <laughs> um, and I, I actually, I, like I have this huge footnote in my dissertation, um, cause I use a little bit of Wittgenstein, um, in one of my, in my section on Augustine on language. Um, and like, as much as I appreciate that, I'm like, Augustine has way more to say about language than just what he says in book one of the confessions. Right. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, um, oh, that, but that, yeah, that's, that, that's helpful in a direction that I would not have thought this podcast would go in, but yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's an extreme, again, like things like, I just think about, yeah, I, how much more I learn the older I get, the more that I do this. And one of the things I didn't realize, uh, when, even when I was doing my dissertation, like how much I would need to learn after, <laughs> um, right. like you, you sort of feel like, oh, you know, I'm going to go really deep into this and I'll never, you know, like part of what this podcast has become in the last year and a half is me trying to learn more things um, than, uh, than I did in my dissertation. Like I thought I had to be, I thought I had to have Absolutely. mastery over my subject. Um, and I really didn't, I had. I had a pretty good command of a lot of like, you know, what Augustine was influenced by, but I still like, I had so much work to do on what he was up to theologically or what he was up to, you know, his place in the tradition. Um, and so it's, you know, I, yeah, it's, it's, in some ways, of course, that's why I love it. Um, there's always more to go on, but, uh, so I like, yeah, these, absolutely. I like questions. absolutely. I mean, my reference manager just keeps the list of books to read just keeps expanding at a much higher rate than I actually read books. So it just gets worse and worse in that sense. <laughs> well, yeah, if, if any of the uh, editors uh, actually are listening to this, who I've worked with, who send me the books, I will say that it's one of my favorite parts about doing the podcast is there's a lot of books I want to read. So I just, I like reach out and they reach out to me. Hey, have you read this one? Uh, yeah, sure. Please send it on over. I don't want to pay a hundred dollars for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. Uh, we, we only have a few more minutes. I don't want to, I know that you got to go here. Um, and I messed up our time a little bit uh, when we got started. That's all right. I, mean, I, have, I have a few more, but yeah, it's fine. I, I, I you want to respect your time. Uh, yeah. So, um, let's see. So, oh yeah, I like, this was almost like a throwaway line as I was going through, but I thought it was really interesting. Um, you talk about uh, a little bit about original sin in modern theologies. I can't remember chapter four or five. Um, and, um, and you said that a rejection of original sin might be, might seem, uh, be seen to be dehumanizing. Um, and which is fascinating because a lot of people sort of argue that original sin, the concept itself is dehumanizing, or if not dehumanizing is at least sort of lambasting humans unnecessarily. Um, and so you say specifically when sin is reduced to an act or better when sin is reduced to the, reduced to the uh, the violations of those with the use of free will, infants and the severely mentally disabled are at least implicitly excluded. Um, so I just thought maybe uh, you could talk about a little bit about how original sin can actually be a useful and helpful um, way of, of um, helping us think through even these categories that we don't often think about when we're doing theology. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the broader question, yeah, so this original question of whether the denial of original sin could lead to dehumanization is comes in the context of 
a discussion of a movement in modern theology away from a historical fall. So for various reasons in the modern era, many people came to believe that the doctrine of a historical fall was just totally untenable. Some people, I think, made that move because they associated the idea of original sin in the fall very tightly with Augustine, and they came to believe that some specifically Augustinian theses, such as the pre-existence of human nature in Adam's loins, this inheritance of the guilt for Adam's act of sin, and the idea that, that Adam and Eve existed in a historical garden from whom all human beings uh, descended, um, in addition to being problematized eventually by evolutionary theory. There's also historical critical scholarship, biblical scholarship that precedes that challenging it. So a lot of people started to think we can't think of the fall historically. And actually really quick as a side note, I actually don't think that that follows. And I have, a, I have an article in pro ecclesia that extends some of the arguments of this book that uh, it's called toward a new account of the fall. And I argue that there actually is the possibility of defending a historical fall, even in a kind of modern context for, for various reasons. Uh -huh. So I don't accept that, that modern move, but in response to this problematization of the fall, a couple of major attempts to replace it originated. And one of them was indebted to a least a common interpretation of Immanuel Kant and Kant. There's a lot of debate about exactly what he thought and, and exactly what he was trying to say, but at least one interpretation of Kant that became influential in theology held that although there was no historical fall, we can still reinterpret the fall as this universality of bad decision-making. So it's like, yeah, there's no inherited guilt. There's no original sin. However, everybody basically messes up. Nobody's perfect, right? And so we shouldn't be like naive optimists and think that human nature is just you know, super sunshine and, and, and roses. And we could just, you know, find our way to a utopia if we just freed ourselves of religious dogmas <laughs> or whatever other story you want to tell that's, that's like very optimistic about the possibility yeah. of human nature and flourishing. And so the idea is, yeah, we all do wrong. We all sin, if you like, uh -huh. <laughs> right? And it was intentionally framed as in a, in a, in a way that could be translated into non-theological terms like wrongdoing, sure. and badness, and so on. So, but I think... One of the things that's tricky about that is, is that if you want to identify this ability to have sin, if you want to identify that really, really, really closely with the possession of the use of reason and the ability to exercise free will, there's a risk. I don't, I don't claim that it's entailed by this, but I do uh -huh. think there's a kind of, there's a kind of, momentum or, or sort of inclination in this view, in this direction, if you identify those things so strongly, it can become very easy to say that human existence itself requires, in the full sense, requires the exercise of reason, free will, and so on. And if you make that move, then there's going to be this temptation to deny humanity to those who do not actually have the ability to exercise reason, free will, and so on. And I mentioned in the notes in the book, a couple of scholars who did actually move in that direction. Uh, they had this sort of Kantian idea that it's essential to have the exercise of reason in order to do wrong, in order to have a kind of moral status. And because they wanted to only assign moral status to people who were able to exercise free will, they then wound up denying the sort yeah. of moral status of being human to those who didn't. <laughs> so that's that's the idea. Now I think you know yeah. in theory you could. I, I don't deny that someone could you know block that move logically. Like yeah. someone could say, 
look, I don't believe in original sin, but I do believe that human beings have dignity and so on, you know, from the very beginning. And therefore they have to be accorded rights and, and, and so on, and they shouldn't be abused. So I, I, I grant that that can happen, but it, it does seem a little bit tricky. And I think the great thing about original sin and one of the uses of it is that it gives you this clarity, extreme clarity actually, about the moral worth of individuals mm-hmm. from the beginning, because yep. the, the doctrine of original sin is about the need for redemption in Christ. And it right. is about the call to redemption in Christ. And especially in Thomistic terms, but also this could be framed in, in other uh, terms as well, but especially in Thomistic terms, when original sin is precisely the lack of supernatural saving grace of Jesus Christ, when you're confessing that an infant has sin, you are confessing that that infant is, you're confessing at the exact same time that that infant is made the Imago Dei, called to yeah. redemption in Christ, and needs something from the outside that will save him or her and bring them into eternal communion with God. So I think it's a, it can be, it's a very beautiful doctrine in that yeah. sense. Um, although I would acknowledge that historically there is a association of the doctrine of original sin with the doctrine of infant damnation, which right. is not one that I endorse. But, and I think historically they haven't always gone so tightly together and we could get into that another time, perhaps in another conversation. But, uh, yeah, so it's it's tricky historically, but I do think that there can be some very positive uses of the doctrine, if you like. Um, although I think fundamentally the doctrine is rooted in scripture, so I wouldn't frame it in a kind of pragmatic sense. But I do think that <laughs> having having established the doctrine, there are these benefits to it that, that can be identified as well. So yeah. I don't know if that's getting exactly your question there, Chad. But oh no, that was perfect. Yeah, I was I was I was going to try to lead you on to where you ended, uh, but you you were almost preaching there, maybe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, which which was another one of my questions. Um, but uh, yeah, I I just you know one of the things that I'm I'm sort of also interested in is how people are able to incorporate a lot of their doctoral research with their pastoral work. So we had Matthew Wilcoxon on. We talked a little bit about. Um, you know how I I was trying to explain Chalcedon to a a, a church to my church um, in a class that we were doing, and I realized like I said, what is what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be God? Uh, and I said that was important for understanding what was going on at Chalcedon. And the definitions that I received about what was God and what was human were so far from uh, where. Um, uh, where we were at uh, with uh, Cyril uh, of Alexandria, um, that I was like, you know, it's going to be hard for me to explain this doctrine when you don't have the same concepts um, that he does. Um, <laughs> and so it just made me wonder, I was like, man, this is so hard. Yeah, it's very tricky. And yeah, I can speak to that a bit if we want to move to that topic. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, so yeah, I it's, mean, it's we, tricky. We it's something I'm, I'm, yeah, it's something I'm trying to learn as I go. We had a opportunity that was that was a lot of fun to do a little grant from the Henry Center at TEDS at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and John Templeton Foundation that was um, the John Stott Award for Pastoral Engagement. And it was specifically designed to help congregations engage science. But in a broader sense, it's to this question of how do you engage theology, deeper scriptural understanding. And that was fun. We were able to do a focus group as a part of that grant, we were able to kind of explore some ideas and do a sermon series that came out of it. And the, I mean, I would just say it's it's something I'm learning. And I think one of the great things about being, and I would speak to anybody out there who's in a PhD program maybe and is thinking about maybe ministry or academia or both, but I think one of the things for me that's been 
great about being in ministry and pastoral ministry, specifically after many years in an exclusively academic context. I do still teach at a, at a seminary, but in terms of moving from an exclusively academic context, in terms of my focus to a, to a pastoral context has been getting stretched to think about the connection between doctrine and people's lives. And I think that's really the key is, can you connect these ideas that have this profound significance to the church and they have this profound truth? Can you connect them to people's lives? And it's not to instrumentalize it, not to say it's only important if it has quote unquote relevance or something, but yeah. can you show the connection? Can you, can you make that connection? And that's, that's one of the main things that uh, I've been trying to develop in my own ministry is trying to help people see the connections between these things. And um, one, one thing that I'm trying to do, and this is, again, I, as I said, it's a work in progress. It's something I'm trying to learn. But one thing I think is, is helpful is if, in, and it, this is for anybody who's, who is kind of a pastor theologian out there, I think if you can show, like if, let's say that you're, you're preaching, it, let's say your, your sermon is like 25 minutes or something, um, maybe if you have a deep idea that's kind of conceptually difficult that you want to get into, um, maybe get into that for a chunk of the sermon but then bring it back to something that's more universally accessible, you know, at some yeah. point, you know, and it doesn't have to be in one order or another, you know, it could be ones at the beginning, ones at the end or vice versa. But at some point have some kind of gospel proclamation or just something that's very clear, very resounding, very inspiring that anybody, anybody can get a hold on. And then maybe part of it becomes this more, you know, conceptual analysis. I think one of the mistakes I've made at times is getting so deep, into the conceptual analysis that you wind up speaking to some people who, who are interested in that kind of stuff, but then you wind up yeah. losing other people. So yeah. in some ways, actually just trying to speak to, to multiple things yep. in the same message can be effective, even though it goes a little bit against some conventional uh, wisdom in, in homiletical theory that a lot of it these days emphasizes the importance of a unified message and uh -huh. really kind of unpacking one single idea through a lot of, through a lot of illustrations, stories, analogies, uh, the danger of that, though, is if you're trying to do something theological and you unpack only one difficult idea in a given sermon, you you may wind up losing a lot of people. So yeah. I don't know if that's helpful, but that's yeah. that's one of the things I think a lot about is just the homiletical question of how to bring this into preaching. And um, yeah, it's definitely something I'm still learning. Um, another group I would plug that has been great is the, I think you said you you had Matt uh, Wilcox and Non, or you're going to uh -huh. have him on, but yep. yeah, the Center for Pastor on, Theologians. Yeah. That he's, I'm a part of that as well, and that's been that's been a lot of fun to uh, learn from other folks who are trying to bring, kind of trying to renew this this vocation of the pastor as someone who's also thinking theologically, which is a classic, of course, classic tradition that sure. has been the case for most of church history, but it's some for some reason or reasons sort of faded in the 20th century um, and in, in recent decades. But I believe that it needs to be brought back. I'm trying to, in my own life, trying to do that to the extent that I can. And I think it's an exciting development that a lot more people are thinking in those terms. Yeah. Well, Danny, thank you very much. Um, and we've uh, enjoyed having you on the podcast. So the book is Aquinas, Original Sin and the Challenge of Evolution with Cambridge University Press. Um, we, of course, only touch the surface of a few different things. Uh, the book is rich, full, um, and, uh, is, is, yeah, we didn't even touch on the, really the, well, I guess you mentioned briefly evolution, but we didn't really even get into the science part. Um, so, uh, thank you. Another Danny. time, it another was, time. Yeah. Um, yeah, we really appreciate it. Chad, thanks for having me on, man. This was a lot of fun. Look forward to talking again.
thanks for listening to our uh, episode this week. Um, and like I say, we'll be back with a few more uh, in the coming weeks. Thank you for listening. <laughs>